0: Welcome back to the Wrong Advice podcast. I'm your host John Pacuto, and I'm very excited to have Father Anthony Rendazzo on the line with us today in studio, Holy Trinity in Westfield, New Jersey. Father Anthony, how are you? I'm very fine, John. Thank you very much for this gracious invitation to share the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. I'm so excited to have you on today. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners? Yes, my name is
1: Anthony Rendazzo. I'm the pastor of Holy Trinity Parish Church here in Westfield. Uh, we are here in central new jersey we have a parish that is celebrating its 150th anniversary of foundation this year wow and we have a school that is growing in fact today the principal gave me the good news that in the fall we will be hosting 377 children in the school wow thus uh here at holy trinity
0: so far so good as a good community good staff very happy to be here that's amazing. Obviously, we have known each other since 90. What was your first year? 96. 1996. So, you were the father, the priest, one of the three, I believe, at Notre Dame Church in North Caldwell, uh, which is my church that I still attend today. And uh, talk me through kind of your experience as being a priest and how you got to Westfield via Notre Dame and, and kind of a little bit of your journey. John, thank you for that question.
1: Well, the journey, as far as formation begins, begins with uh, family. Grew up in uh, Lodi, New Jersey, an Italian Catholic family in Lodi, a lydia in Mount Virgin Parish in Garfield, hmm. New Jersey, and then uh, went on to uh, Don Bosco Prep, Ramsey. Oh, didn't know that. Oh, uh, yes. Had a, uh, four years at the prep, and then Seton Hall University, and then had the great invitation to... to graduate school, theology school in Belgium, Hmm. the Catholic University of Levain in Belgium, the oldest Catholic university in Western Europe. After uh, four years there, then was gifted with one more year at the Gregorian University in Rome, and then in 1986, ordained to the priesthood, came back in 1987 after completing that fifth year of study at the Gregorian University in Rome and began ministry in the city, Jersey City. I was at a Lady of Mercy in Jersey City for nearly 10 years in a large uh, parish in the city. And uh, that was an initial orientation into parish life as a parish priest after 10 years there. Then was invited to come to Notre Dame by uh, Father Ed, Mm. Monsignor Cuba. And uh, that was wonderful. Uh, We had spent 12 years together Uh, Co-workers, as Father Ed would always say, co-workers, what a wonderful community. And uh, after Father Ed left, I became the pastor for six years. And that altogether was 18 years in North Caldwell. And then five years ago, uh, came here as the associate, then became the pastor here. The uh, fellow that was here was a very dear priest friend of mine also, and by his invitation came here. Uh, thus, I've been very blessed in the invitations that have come my way and that I have been able to graciously accept. And I, that's why I'm grateful for your invitation. Uh, it's a joy to accept invitations of this
0: kind. Oh, I like that. That's a great sentiment. So you've been a priest Pretty much as long as I've been alive. 35 years? Yeah, I'm going to be 36 in December. Okay, so, excellent. Wonderful yes. synergy for uh, yes. for our initial podcast conversation. I, I actually love that kind of numero- numerology or, or so and things yes. kind of yes. tie in like that. Um, I, I would say in the 80s when you were in college, it was much more common to go the route of the priesthood, not as popular of a career vocation today as I'm sure it's... The number of priests enrolling in theology schools not as prevalent. Correct? You know what, John? In the '80s,
1: it was still not many. To be quite honest with oh. you, in the class when I went over to uh, Belgium, our first year theology co- class, as far as the students that were in our seminary, there were only 14 from oh, different wow. parts of the country. The whole house at that time might have been about 50 seminarians. We were going to the university. There in Leuven Louvain in French, but it was still it was small I mean the the call to ministry has never been a large number sure. as you know yes nevertheless um, I would say that it has always been enthralling <laughs> from day one to be a part of the ordained ministry of the Roman Catholic
0: Church. It's well, been I'm, fascinating. I'm glad you, you brought that up. Obviously, I'm, I'm of the assumption that you grew up in a Catholic family. Yes. Ergo, Catholic priest. Yes. What was the initial um, draw to the priesthood, and what made you decide to go down that career path? John, anytime I'm asked that question, I think it, it continues to
1: evolve in the sense that there are two fundamentals. For me, I must say, as a young person, the love of God particularly of Jesus the Christ and the life of the Christ, and also genuinely love people. I am a people person, therefore I've never ever felt that one was separated from the other. Mm. I thought they were intrinsically tied together. And then seeing the work of priests and being in a community at Our Lady of Mount Virgin in Garfield, it just it just drew me. I The people is what... It means to be a priest, to serve the community, Mm -hmm. and uh, that serving the community, for me, is centered in compassion. I think uh, ministry is all about being a compassionate disciple of Christ, serving people lovingly and compassionately. truly believe that to this day. One would have to, I would imagine. (laughs) It makes
0: your your day-to-day a little bit easier. Um, I've been pretty vocal on my podcast about how I have had a... um, I don't want to say love, hate, aid, in a strange relationship with religion in general. Yep. Um, I am immensely, immensely spiritual and and pray daily. Um, I believe in the power of prayer and I believe in the power of spirituality. But I find the that there's a, a disconnect that I don't know if it's because I'm an older person now versus you know the reverence that you have for the church as a child. But I feel as if as I've gotten older, my connection to organized religion in general has waned how do i find myself back coming back to the church number one and number two is that just a common theme of life that is maybe just an inexplicable estrangement between one's faith and one's feeling on organized religion excellent question
1: john but i would put it in this larger frame if there were three words that i would dispense of in the vocabulary that we use in contemporary American life these days, the first word would be religion. And not necessarily because religion or organized religion doesn't have positive values, it does. Mm -hmm. However, the adjective that needs to be in front of the word religion is healthy religion. Often I think when people make an assessment of organized religion, they've seen through history. And this is the case not only in Catholicism, some of the unhealthier aspects that have come from leadership within organized religion. Mm -hmm. So the term religion holds uh, some baggage. And I think perhaps, you know, my nephew is just about your age. He too would probably say the same things you're saying when it comes to organized religion and spirituality. He too prays, I know he prays, but at the same time may not necessarily be engaged in a regular practice of faith in a church building. Yeah. Thus, the term that you use, spiritual, spirituality is perhaps the term that I would be much more comfortable with in general, practicing a spirituality within a religious tradition. Mm. So let's start first with the word spirituality within a religious tradition. And once someone begins to integrate the right vocabulary, then it can be a means of returning back to my second word, which I find to be very important in these times. Instead of the word politics, I much prefer to say community. Hmm. Community is a much better term. In the end, with all the partisanship, with people taking sides, with people saying blue and red states, and this has all been said before, but the better term that will ultimately keep the two of us united and on a common path as fellow human beings, the term is community. Thus, um, my hope is that any form of organized religion is building community. Mm-hmm. And as you know, at Notre Dame, we tried to do that. We were very much a parish that tried to build community through relationships, one to another, uh, with your dear family, with the pachudo family. Thus. For me, the term politics can be very corrosive, mm-hmm. whereas the term community can be very upbuilding. Mm. And the last term that I would jettison from the American vocabulary in this time, and you're going to find this one very surprising, is the word health. I would much rather we use the term well being, where we put two terms together wellness and being, and we all strive for well being. That is to say that we're not getting caught up with health care insurance, we're not uh, getting into the polemics of the term health, but I think we all know the deeper meaning of what it means to be well in body, mind, and spirit, and how people who are not there yet are striving for the wellness and the balance in body, mind, and spirit. So in answer to your question, how you would come back to church, I would say if you you found uh, a healthy community that wasn't uh, talking about uh, divergent politics, but much rather speaking about the well-being of the soul and soul care, that your whole generation would come back
0: tomorrow. I think that the most important thing that you said is the well more so the overarching relatability of what you just said and I've often found you as a pastor specifically to be a re- relatable person because you don't preach um, the message of God in what I would consider uh, like the religious box of things it's more the connectivity of the community and that's why exact what you just said, Touches me and and I can relate to, um, because when you look at their their overarching thing that I look at religion as is it should be all inclusive all inclusive of like a loving environment right it should be all people all places all things and so often it's not right there are exclusivities based on sexual orientation or um you know a a litany of hot button topics um and i think that the fundamental thing that is lacking in quote-unquote organized religion today is like true altruism like I, i know that you have it in spades because you've been in in my life for the better part of 20 years um but one of the things that kind of puts me off from from what's going on in the world today, in in from a religious context, is the Joel Osteen's of the world who are flying around on jumbo jets, and uh, you know you, the terrible things that you hear about the Hillsong church and it's, it's become cool to be like the cool hipster pastor, but you you're trying to kind of skirt the fact that you have like this moral ambiguity to religion itself. Um, and again, I come from this in a more, uh, concerned slash question place because I am incredibly spiritual and I would like to be able to foster a deeper level of spirituality within myself. I think I've done a tremendous amount of growth as an individual in the last five years and I would like there to be a religious component to that beyond me praying oh, you know, by myself, if if that makes sense. To your word, community. You know what, John, you're on a a very
1: keen process, a journey every one of us is on a spiritual journey and as you grow and have more experiences and knowledge and do your research and listen to uh, who is practicing religion and you see the the faults and the strengths and as you discern what are the strengths that's going to resonate with your deeper spirituality and I like the term deeper because that tells me that God's presence within you is prompting you to search, to question, to be curious. One of the most fundamental parts of the spiritual journey is curiosity, and out of curiosity one is able to be open and relate to others and listen to others' points of view. And that's what helps inclusivity, as you say. Healthy religion is about welcome healthy religion is about making all feel that they are to be there. Mm -hmm. No one is to be excluded. And our identity as human beings, created in the image and likeness of God, a Judeo-Christian belief, we're all created in the likeness and image of God. That should hold us, sustain us, empower us, help us to be better persons one to another mm-hmm. in community. Yeah. So some of the fundamental tenets of a Jewish Christian faith when we really begin to plumb deeper, they will help us to grow. I don't think I've spoken to anyone religious or spiritual who would put aside that we're all created in the image and likeness of God.
0: Absolutely. But when you look at the overarching <laughs> world today right there is just a there's been a cataclysmic shift in segmentation of communities over red and blue white and black gay and straight and it must make it a very difficult time to be a pastor to speak to a congregation of people when so many people are being divided on a daily basis. Can you speak to me about how you go about maybe your weekly process of preaching the Word of God to a community that is likely more divided than it's ever been? John, once again, very well-worded questions. When it comes to preaching,
1: for me, it begins with listening. Listening, obviously, to the Word that we have to preach on, but also listening to the people and also doing the research on the word, understanding what the original meaning of the word was at that time when it was composed and how it's still meaningful today. But yes, in light of that divisiveness that is within a society today in the American context, I think it's very important to develop a language in preaching that is a narrative that begins to hit those areas of life that everyone has in common and what we all have in common is we grieve the loss of loved ones we all have in common the need to be loved we all see this in the story of jesus of nazareth jesus was an awesome healer he moved between the temple the synagogue and the household and as he navigated the people he met on the streets, in between temple, synagogue, and household, he was able to uh, preach and teach because he was with the people. He met the people where they were at. At times, he modeled and he challenged. Sometimes he modeled more what he was saying than challenging people. It goes both ways. But at the same time, for me personally, preaching and I, I learned this way back in North Caldwell, I guess from, uh, we had wonderful relationships with the other Christian communities, with the Jewish community, that you only become an effective preacher when you gain the trust of people. Mm-hmm. And then when people go home and they talk about the preaching at your dinner table, and I know that happened a few times at the Pachudo dinner uh, absolutely. table. Absolutely. <laughs> so effective preaching is when people trust you, when they begin to recognize that there's some authenticity and relationality to what you're saying. And then as time moves on, then people begin to shift and change maybe a perspective or an attitude or a feeling or a belief. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't happen overnight.
0: Sure. It takes years within a community for sure. I get that. Yes. Um I'm not going to ask specifically, I, I, I don't find it necessary to get into specifics on people's belief on hot button items, um, but what I do want to discuss briefly is that, I, a question I ask a lot on my podcast is, do you believe in an afterlife? And obviously it goes without question that that's not a relevant question for you because <laughs> obviously you do. Um, I find that, I guess through time in life, that I've come to the realization that, this is not a happy accident right I didn't just you know human beings didn't jump from a primordial ooze to you know whatever we're saying I, I believe firmly in like intelligent design and whether that is a, a god whether it is an alien whether it is whatever I, I, I don't have the answer for that but I think since I've been able to come to this like spiritual grasp of I'm here for a reason my life has gotten a lot easier um, I wish it was a little bit easier for there to be relatability in the fact that I believe that we are all here for a reason and my life will have a purpose whether I figure it out today, tomorrow, or 55 years from now, and it's not. And I think there is um, room for religion and or church and or you know Judaism or any number, whatever religion you subscribe to, to be able to kind of soften the burden of just life right Because I've, I often joke in a very serious way that we live in probably the most exhausting time in the history of the world, maybe not physically because we've got every creature comfort on, on earth, mm. um, but for sure emotionally and mentally exhausting. Um, there's not really much of a question in that, but what my, my curiosity for you is is that you've always been able to dictate um, the book of you know the Bible, to be a relatable teaching lesson, even though this is something that's written thousands of years ago from secondhand accounts, um, do you have any tools or tricks or thoughts or <laughs> important indications on what we can do to be better, you know, community members, better neighbors, um, and and feel more comfortability in how our everyday lives are immensely relatable, even though we might be divided by a red or a blue or a, you know, et cetera.
1: You know what, practically, you're act, asking a very practical question. And I think for most of the world's inhabitants, it goes to uh, some of the primary needs that we all have. Here in Westfield, during the pandemic, and I know the generosity is also there in the Calwells, uh people were in need of food. So a food drive is a very basic way where humankind recognizes uh, a a need, hunger. Mm -hmm. And meeting that need, joining people together, making that operation take place, delivering the food, you're not delivering to to a blue house or to a red house. Sure, (laughs) People need food. So I find that when we begin to understand our common needs, then we begin to understand our purpose sometimes i think in this world that is ridden with anxiety as you're saying it it probably is a very emotionally exhausting other periods of time were much more physically exhausting people went to bed physically tired Mm -hmm. Uh, nowadays people are are so wound up they're sleep deprived because they're on mental overdrive and there's too many things coming in simultaneously but at the same time we we do have the capacity to accept some of the basics food water clothing shelter education medicine you know in light of our times we we all know that coming out of the pandemic is depending upon a vaccine and on a treatment Mm -hmm. in many ways and therefore we We have these commonalities that I think can unify us in ways that touch the soul. The basic needs touch the soul. Mm -hmm. And therefore, when they touch the soul, then they give us uh, deeper meaning and purpose. If you look at any of Viktor Frankl's work, who is a concentration survivor on meaning, the search for meaning, he survived the concentration camp. Because he was able to recognize in the ordinary, everyday encounters with his fellow inmates, there are or, or people in that awful setting, uh, prisoners, that they, they needed one another. They, they needed to sustain one another in concrete ways. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, our common humanity gives us purpose and reason and willingness to live and to be creative. Because that, too, is another very common need we all have to be creative in some way. This podcast is part of your creativity, Mm -hmm. and we all need a venue for that creativity. And giving someone that you might disagree with politically on something a venue to be generous by giving food is a means of connecting, and that's what empowers the soul, anything that connects one to another empowers the soul because the soul is ultimately uh that deepest presence of the divine or ultimate reality or superpower whatever Mm -hmm. you want to call god that's within not only within me but within you but there's common dimensions to that
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and when we get into the zone of the common dimensions then good things happen
0: i like that um you obviously being a priest have a very direct connection to their relationship with religion Um, but i imagine you as any human being does has a varying degree of their, call it faith meter, on a scale of zero to 100%. Um, talk to me a little bit about your, your journey with faith and your journey through your experience with God, um, you know, kind of throughout the course of your life and, you know, moments that may have tested your faith, um, you know, things that you've done in your personal life that have either been able to strengthen that bond or, you know, how it kind of has, you know, matured over the course of your life.
1: I, I think what you're asking is a developmental question. And when I think back when I was your age at 35 and now at 60, yes, uh, perhaps at 35, the way I looked at life in general and growing as a priest, I was a priest at 35 years old, that my prayer life and family life and life with friends and balancing with uh, other activities uh, some 27 years ago I got very active in the yoga world. I don't know if you
0: know that. I did not.
1: Yeah. So I've been a practitioner of uh, yoga for many years, all different variations on the theme. And in in that practice, in that physical practice, but has also spiritual dimensions and other aspects to the yoga practice, that cultivated for me uh, a deeper prayer life, but also cultivated for me uh, a faith response. My thing is practice healthy religion, practice yoga. One does not negate the other. So when it comes to uh, questions on the full definition of how faith has touched my life through loss or touched my life through times of uh, indecision or not being sure what was the better direction to go in, I guess, for, for lack of better word. For lack of better words, I, I have felt this inner presence of a living God. I went on the Camino uh, oh, many years very ago. Jealous. Yes. Oh, have you and seen that, the movie The Way? Of course. Oh. Yes, yes. It's on my bucket list. Yes, yeah. yes. And I highly recommend it. I think everyone who wants to go on an authentic trek on a journey, on an odyssey, on an odyssey, to go on the Camino would, is formative, transformative. It's both formative and transformative. So on the Camino, I came to a reckoning on many things and felt God's presence through the people I met, strangers on the way, through the nature. So it's it's hard for me to define all the moments that uh, faith has been expanded or enhanced. Or I don't use the word tested. I, I'm not into that term, to be quite honest with you. So, when the faith in Jesus Christ, I've, I've always had, in fact, I'm doing this piece in the fall uh, for a group, and they want to know the three things that have been passions for me throughout priesthood. The first passion that I've always had back to undergraduate days at Seton Hall is a passion for the Jesus of history. Right now, I'm in the process of putting together the 50 most important books that have influenced my life, and most of those books, a fair number of them are on the historical research of Jesus of Nazareth, Mm -hmm. uh, from a critical scholarly point of view. So that's one passion that I've had for many decades, been on conferences and have been with many people looking at the historical Jesus, the Jesus of history. The second passion, and that happened with the yoga world, because I began to get really invested in that in many ways. Uh, co-authored a text entitled Beatitudes, Christ, and the Practice of Yoga, and that too I, I've read extensively, I've been in dialogues with yoga teachers, and just the other day I was in the yoga classroom in dialogue with the, some of the students and teachers, so that's been a second passion. And the third one is the compassionate unity of humankind. <laughs> I always want to connect. Pie in the sky. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's fair. Right. Compassionate unity of humankind, that means talking with anyone, anywhere. I want to talk to the person in Penn Station. I want to talk to the pastor at Bethel Baptist. I want to talk to uh, the person who is transgendered. I want to talk to anyone because I want to somehow bring together what it means to be one of the unifiers for the compassionate unity of humankind. So those, thi- those three things, uh, I'm fascinated by cultures, I'm fascinated by language and how language tweaks a cultural experience, for example, for love, you know, French speak beautiful words of love and, you know, the French language, you will see that it is truly a language of love. Mm-hmm. So in, in that respect, um, coming back to that large question on faith, passion, compassion, faith, Community, all these experiences interconnect and they have throughout my entire life up to this point.
0: I think, uh, you know, again, I'm going to, you know, repeat myself. The I, I, obviously not having had these level of conversations with priests outside of yourself before, um, I would imagine a lot of your thought processes around human beings differs from some of the more strictly regimented people within organized religion. <laughs> priests, you know, uh, Etc. Because um, you mentioned transgender, and it's like such a great uh, segue point to that. We've we've reached sort of like this muddle point in modern society where everyone is being excluded based on a number of things. Right? We don't have to get through the list. But I thought that uh, the Pope had an opportunity very recently to make a huge, really monumental shift in his you know, acceptance of gay marriage and a whole litany of things. Um, and it fosters back to my original point of where I, I have this unfortunate relationship with religion right now is where I find it should be all-inclusive and it is exclusive of people based on a number of different factors. Um, do you see a scenario in one year, 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, where uh an organized religion, whether it's Judaism, whether it's the Roman Catholic Church, is more accepting of people based on the things that make them different? John, I think so. I think
1: acceptance is a gradual process all through history. And that it will take a lot more maturity. So I think that maturation and transformation go together. Mm. For many people, the reason why they can't accept the other is because they can't accept oneself. Oh, And there's, there's many things that I think hinder the openness in community and organized religion, particularly in leadership, is that we, we have to accept our weaknesses and our strengths within oneself. Everyone has a shadow side. Everyone is not the perfect being. Truth. and uh, and we all by the grace of God we go it's graced experience God's presence actively engaging our lives with our sinfulness the first thing this Pope said uh, was admitting his own posture as a sinner like anyone else at the same time this Pope emphasizes that in the in in how we're getting to acceptance, We should always be practitioners of mercy Mm -hmm. if i can't uh understand entirely your psychology or your orientation or i can't understand your politics there 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 is always to be room for reconciliation and mercy on both parts because the way i might be not entirely comfortable with you you might not be entirely comfortable with me Mm -hmm. it's mutual and much of this lack of acceptance, it becomes, so one group feels this way, then they become less accepting. <laughs> right. And it goes both ways. And and that will not get humanity anywhere, ultimately. Because the evolution, which we find in reality, is interconnected, interrelated, inter, inter, inter on on subatomic levels Mm -hmm. so we're only going up against the grain of reality when we try to pull apart or when we try to put aside because that's not how reality works true reality is always being drawn one to another it's it's not about separation we create separation because of our dualisms we create separation because we can only see either or Instead of both and. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I learned in the European education, is you never just looked at a question and only gave one side of the argument. You gave multiple sides of the argument. Mm-hmm. You did a, It was a status questionis, which means the state of the question, from all different sides. And then it was an inclusive way of thinking. See, once you have an inclusive way of thinking, then I think you have an inclusive way of accepting then i think you have an inclusive way of behaving then i think you have an inclusive way of being compassionate to any human being now the movement too is not only to be compassionate with human beings but to the wider environment the the wider animal kingdom so our compassion goes into the alleviation of suffering but it 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 stems from within if we're not peaceful from within We don't throw off peace. Sure. That's how it works.
0: Uh, Again, beating a dead horse at this point, that's who you are as a a human being. It's very easy to see through your spoken word at any organized mass or any informal conversation we've had at dinner that you have a, we'll call it a love is love kind of uh, vision of life. But is there going to be the possibility for that to trans? You know, pose beyond yourself, right? Are you able to teach the members of your community new and inclusive ways of accepting people who are not written down in a book that's a few thousand years old of being accepted? Well,
1: John, once again, I think a good leader is to model and challenge. In many cases, I think people here at Holy Trinity or Lady of Mercy in Jersey City and Notre Dame, you, you only teach by modeling. So I'm not gonna say anything to anyone that I'm not trying to practice, mm-hmm. that I'm not trying to be a part of or not be drawn into with any group. So here with the Afro-American community and I'm on the uh, Martin Luther King Association, people knew from day one the, the sensitivity about the question of Afro-American inclusion and the whole story of of the people, of our people. We're all all one people. So in in that respect, to model and challenge, at times you have to choose the right times to challenge. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not going to challenge someone on on something that's pivotal for the betterment of society at a funeral. Sure. That's not the time to do that. (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) But I'm, I might challenge him on a Sunday at a 5.30 mass to reconsider something.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm not at a wedding. At a wedding is a unifying event. Sure. I'm not going to try to create some type of intellectual division in that wedding group. I want to keep it on love so that when we come back to the reception, you can ask me to expand a little bit more on love, mm-hmm. which is the unifying principle. And I, I think that that's, we, we have to know the time and place. Mm-hmm. And, that only comes with mentors i must put out a shout out to father ed he's been a great mentor the pastor here father joe massiel the retired pastor i've had wonderful mentors wonderful friends women friends also who've been great mentors who have pointed things out to me in my own psyche so you got to rethink this mm-hmm. you got to, and that helped because we're all unfinished yeah I don't claim to have the answers on anything, but I do claim one thing, to be a quester and to be a student of human experience, and serious student, a student of human experience, and therefore a willingness to help me to understand more.
0: I find that immensely relatable. Obviously, it's one of the contributing factors to me starting this podcast to have these conversations with people about life, about their journey, about their uh, you know, hopes, wants, wishes, and dreams, and it's pretty much why we're sitting here today um i ask the question often it's like are you happy like today tomorrow you know yesterday are you happy are you you know are you enjoying yourself is life good um i would imagine in your type of vocation, there are immensely great days, i.e. weddings and baptisms and communions and immensely, you know, trying days like funerals. And, you know, we're doing this on a Monday because you have to administer funeral rites tomorrow. Um, Talk to me about your happiness um, and how your job either aids or, you know, detracts from your mood on a daily basis.
1: The, the question on happiness, I think, is asked on every podcast in many ways. But for me, happiness is a factor of gratitude. In fact, the other day I heard a major speaker say that in relationships, the best thing uh, people in relationship can do for one another is be grateful to one another. That goes from thanks for bringing me to coffee, thanks for uh, doing that favor to me. The, the ordinary gratefulness, living a life of gratefulness, is going to be bringing more happiness into your life. Mm-hmm. So yes, at times and the experiences that I'm having, I'm still at the end of the day uh, thanking God. I thank God as soon as I'm in the shower, the first thing I do is thank God that this is clean water mm-hmm. and that I'm able to be in a comfortable home here. So in the course of the day, I'm always trying to just stop a moment and give thanks at meals which is very important to one to recognize in that basic need that i have a meal i have a a priest friend coming tonight we're going to have a wonderfully home-cooked meal i'm grateful for that and that gratitude keeps me happy when people ask uh, often can you give us a few lines on your bio i just say i'm the happy parish priest (laughs) no and that yes i understand that happiness uh is different from everyone but gratitude is a deep and meaningful part of how that happiness happens and then joyful i mean if you do indeed uh find joy in relationships if you find joy when i go over to that school when i welcome these kids back on september 8th and i'm standing out there seeing these kids come in that's gonna be really joyful Mm -hmm. those are moments where i say the joy is coming here and it's I'm anticipating that joy. I don't know what joy that will bring specifically in that moment, but you got to anticipate the joys. Mm. And you have to uh, be open to how God's presence is going to work the happiness through your gratitude. If you feel entitled, if you feel you deserve this, you deserve that, you feel this is your birthright, the more and more you feel that type of thing, the less and less you will be happy.
0: I think that's uh, an immensely important perspective. You had mentioned, um, you know, we're all flawed individuals and the work inside is what happens most um, one of the questions that i've been found having conversations like this with my brother or my friends is that the person that i am today is the best version of myself right i've learned over the course of these 35 years so many life lessons so many trials tribulations good things bad things whatever it might be has led to the point of I am the most comfortable version of myself today, and I'll be an even more comfortable version of myself tomorrow. Is it possible to teach life lessons that take decades to younger versions of, you know, would 20-year-old John have been able to be as adjusted as 35-year-old John? Uh, That's a very insightful psychological question.
1: I I think different people would answer that question differently. I would say this, and I I would just base it on life experience. I, too, was 20 years old one day, and was 35 years old another day, now 60 years old now. I would say that the, the process of growth and maturation, as you grow in knowledge and you stay humble, I think that certain life lessons can come easier as we let our ego down a bit in our society, we pump the male ego very quickly. So once we start pumping the male ego uh, in so many different ways, because we want them either to succeed academically or succeed on the sports field or succeed in with girlfriends, and all this, once we, keep, once we pump that, then th- there's less an, a humility. A hu- humility is something that comes with years but knowledge too comes with years. So knowledge and humility are the two primary ingredients that create wisdom. So I'm not sure always that, yes, years and life experiences and travel and being with people from other cultures, uh, you might not have that fully. When I was 20, I did not have the worldview that I had once I went to Belgium at 22 and lived in europe from 22 to 27 you Mm -hmm. know so that that maturation came by getting out of the american culture into another world view so that too is a factor so it's hard to say like you say that the john you are now at 35 you you feel at peace with yourself you feel at peace with where you are today in the now and the now is important to be in the now as you look into the future and as you your scope continues to expand to constantly expanding life we hope and as that happens then the knowledge plus the humility sprinkled with great experiences of love and compassion make for a life of wisdom and a life of grace
0: truly. I think that's a good point. Um, A lot of the journey that I've done self-reflective-wise is realizing that whatever detrimental, negative events in my past may have occurred, they can no longer be viewed as a regret or something that I am not happy with. It has to be looked upon as a lesson. What types of advice or tips do you have on looking at the negative of you know negative aspects of life in your past namely obviously present negatives are difficult to fully wrap your head around to kind of try to get that growth of you know something happened to me when i was 18 or 20 or whatever it might be how do i look at that as more of a teachable moment versus something that i regret
1: oh that's too a very fine question You know, through these moments that uh, are negative or were hurtful or painful, or we felt like a victim, or we felt abuse, or we were uh, sabotaged by life, I like that, sabotaged by life, Uh, that ultimately, in that down, it, it, it becomes a springboard. And that springboard in the gift of imperfection, in the in the gift of not getting it right, and I'm using purposely that word in the gift of not getting it right, in the gift of imperfection, in the gift of our weaknesses, in the gift of our failures, because out of that, that is, uh, as they say in the yoga world, uh, the lotus grows in the mud. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so in that respect. But you have to have the time to reflect on it. The key thing is, is so often people can have all these experiences which are not positive, but they don't give themselves what I consider to be vital, a retreat time. So you say, okay, this has gone on in my life. I need time to spend in reflection, in silence, in community, in solitude. Because that's when you begin to excavate. The feelings and everything around that. And if you can do that with a therapist, if you can do that with a confidant, if you can do that with a skilled counselor, if you can do that with a soul partner, whoever you do that with, that's going to be therapeutic and healing because you don't want that weight and baggage to hinder your creativity. It has to be the seeds to your creativity some of the great artists of our times when you look at their life journey it's been tough but they've used that as the very kernels of popping into new life Mm -hmm. so they they brought out of uh, that much might have been very Painful something truly Creative and wonderful That's how I, it works
0: I find it interesting that of all the people that you mentioned To go through these types of things You failed to mention a, a faith leader or, or a priest Or a, you know, a therapist or soulmate Or whatever, friend, confidant But you didn't mention a priest
1: Well I, I think Yes, I think a priest can be very Helpful for people But people They have to choose wisely uh, a religious leader today, whether it be a priest, a rabbi, uh, who is in the practice of healthy religion. <laughs> okay, so I, I, I want people to to understand that if it's if you sense it's a healthy, welcoming community, and that people are genuinely uh, there and at peace and comfortable, and people are participating, you're not attending, you're participating. Then there's a good chance that the Pastor is setting the tone. Mm-hmm. The rabbi is setting the tone. The imam is setting the tone. So that's good, and that's perhaps maybe the person that you would like to engage uh, on the deeper journey. That's what this is—the deeper journey. This is not just asking about whether or not you know you read the, the the newspaper. It's going deeper with someone and trusting someone, and that trust cannot be betrayed because in in as you speak, there's also confidentiality mm-hmm. to that trust, yeah, and that to me is also very important. So, uh, yes, there are definitely priests that I know that would be great confidants and trustworthy people, but I, I think for the most part we have to be aware that God will indeed uh, bring into our life different people who can be that trusted confidant and can work with us on our journey of maturation and transformation
0: i like that i feel as if we live in a society that is immensely lacking in altruism right i think that the altruistic spirit of humanity wanes as time goes on um is that just the next evolution of society of you know an immensely dystopian picture or is there likely to be a unifying event like and i'm not necessarily speaking of okay aliens invade or you know cataclysmic you know earth type things but what i mean is is there a situation where we as people can be better versions of ourselves, more compassionate, more understanding, and more caring for our neighbor.
1: Well, I, I have to appeal here to a book that I read about a year and a half ago by Nicholas Christakis called Blueprint. And the thesis of Christakis's text, he is a physician from Yale University, is that fundamentally people are cooperators. We cooperate with one another, or else we wouldn't be here today. So that point on altruism, his point is, is that it, in our in our genus as humankind, uh, we are cut to cooperate. That's the blueprint. So I'm confident in that blueprint that we are cut out to cooperate. And altruism, the love commandment, uh, the golden rule, the all those ethical uh, mandates that preserve the integrity and the solidarity of community I, I think will ultimately come out in the end positively i'm i'm still the eternal optimist even though yes there are many signs where uh, basic altruism might be lacking mm-hmm. because we've been in the cult of narcissism mm-hmm. oh. and uh we have uh we have really imbibed the kool-aid Of the me, me, me generation. And that's not bringing anyone any happiness. Mm -hmm. Because as one of my favorite authors says, and she's not only an author, but she's a great podcast person. If you ever get this one, Esther Perel. I don't know if you've ever heard anything from Esther. Esther Perel would say that the quality of our relationships determines the quality of our life. I would agree with that. And I would agree with that. And I would include with this, and I think Esther would be in agreement, that if you are growing and developing in relationship with God, that too will qualify your life journey. So in, in that respect, I, I think that the sometimes we, we, we have to be aware that what we hear is not always the full picture. There's altruism going on, if you want to use that term or care for the other, in ways that don't necessarily become known. When people in quieter moments open up to me and I ask them about some of their goodness, or somehow it prompts what they're doing, there's a lot of anonymous givers out there. Mm -hmm. People just doing anonymous works for others that never have received any recognition, any affirmation, but they're the people that will be there for others in ways that are perhaps beyond anything we can imagine.
0: Mm, I like that. I would like to, for a second, go back and talk a little bit about the journey that you had on the Camino, um, because I'm sure not many of my listeners have seen the movie The Way, um, but The Way is a movie with Martin Sheen, which tells the story of a father's road of grief through the Camino de Compostelo, which starts somewhere in France, ends its way through um, Spain. Um, A couple questions are, how old were you when you did it? how much of it did you do and talk to me about the journey of the compostello
1: okay let's see. i did the well it it was part of a sabbatical before i became the pastor of notre dame and north calwell in uh let's see this is 2000 uh let's see 2008 part of the of putting together the sabbatical schedule was the Camino, and I think that I was, let's see, 48, <laughs> uh, 48 years old. And the going on the Camino, I started in uh, France at saint jean du Pied at the bottom of the French Pyrenees i did it alone i started out alone father ed was a great help because he was putting great big boulders in my backpack (laughs) so that i could go up the mountains there and so i did a lot of walking up and down hills in north Caldwell, in order to prepare physically for it father ken was there at the time too and uh i was getting a lot of expert advice from uh father ken who two tours in vietnam Mm -hmm. uh so i was on the camino for 25 days I started on October 3rd, and oh, excuse me, October 5th. I went from October 5th to October 30th, 25 days. I covered probably in that span of time about 375 miles on the Camino. I, I followed the Camino Francaise. I There are two people to this day that I still am friends with. One is a wonderful lady. Uh, from ireland udell swords and i walked with udell for probably about 10 days we walked together i met her on the way and a gentleman from uh, denmark uh benny Engo, who is a photojournalist uh, also a psychotherapist he was walking the camino in thanksgiving for uh, a new marriage and the birth of his child it was precarious pregnancy for his wife and his devotion was: if she survived and baby survived, I walked the Camino. So uh, all through these years, I've had uh, contact with Benny by email, and I walked with him for about a week. So yes, I mean the the Camino uh, at that time, and then I brought people back. My promise was: if if I survived it, <laughs> that I would bring others with me. So I went in 2014. Oh wow! I went with a team of uh, a couple of folks from North Caldwell. Uh, an attorney, a teacher, a legal assistant, police officer, and myself. It was uh, three women and two guys, and we were a team of five, and we we hung together, and we did it together. We were on the Camino at that time for about, uh, let's say, five days of walking. We had about five days of walking. We had all together about ten days on the Camino, but it was that was a different experience than the first time, but I certainly learned. Uh, many lessons on the Camino in fact I was sending back at the time to North qualwell reports from the Camino <laughs> and uh, the lessons learned on the Camino there are many and the first one you you learn is how you depend on one another because there was one uh, one occasion just brief story walking along and my uh, water had run down and uh, it was kind of a hot day and Edel had more water. He said, "Don't worry, I have water. Not to worry. I got plenty of water for both of us." So you 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 come to understand that we are really one. <laughs> you know, you you're helping me. I'm going to help you in some way. We uh we were together, and that's what I think most of life is: is really understanding the togetherness. And how that togetherness deepens your intimacy within, and your intimacy with others.
0: I think that's beautiful. I think um, one of my common, uh, you know, tropes, one of my common themes that I re- reiterate is that he or she is just a, they're just a person, right? He's just a person, you know, multi-billion-dollar person, athlete whatever it might be, they're just people. They have different happenstance and circumstance in their life that have led them to positions of massive social media followings or athletic gifts, whatever it might be. But at the end of the day, they still have anxiety. They still have confidence issues. They still have fears of imposter syndrome. There's, there's common human elements that we all ha- know and share.
1: Absolutely. I mean, and that's what, indeed, when people, I think we're in a, a period of time where people are admitting that more. Thankfully so. Thankfully so. I think people, and that's, the uh, you know, with uh, Brene Brown, speaks about vulnerability. And that, too, is uh, a part of maturation, understanding that we are vulnerable. And males, at times, want to shield themselves from being vulnerable or expressing any emotion. But I think we're, we're moving away from that. And uh, people are getting more honest and transparent with one another. And I think I'm very confident in your generation that it will model uh, genuine friendship, uh, fidelity, loyalty to one another, community. Uh, so I- I'm confident. I'm, like I said, I'm an eternal optimist.
0: I'm a uh, optimistic cynic. So I will... Be trepidation. Is in my, uh, in my agreement. Trepidation's okay. That's all right. Trepidation's good. (laughs) I like to spend the last bit of each of my podcasts doing sort of like a little bit of a rapid fire. Um, Some of them are easy questions. Some of them are a little bit more thought provoking. Um, My first one is what is your biggest fear? My biggest
1: fear is that people will not listen to the best voices of wisdom and the best voices of science
0: couldn't possibly be more appropriate than the day and age that we're living in now <laughs> reason and science who would think that in 2021 we would be so at a loss for that <laughs> wisdom and science what's your favorite book uh
1: well i i must say overall the scriptures the hebrew scriptures the bible is my favorite book i must say that all through the years i've spent the most time right now I've done a critical study of Paul's letter to the Philippians, and uh, as I read that letter, it's about two and a half pages, and I've lectured on that letter. Uh, it's it's just it touches my heart. The scriptures touch my heart continuously. Uh, but it, yeah, I have many favorite books. It's hard for me to say if we do this podcast again, we will in six I'll, months. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you about the top fifty.
0: Great, I'll look forward to it. What's your favorite movie?
1: Ah, uh, very good question. My favorite, you know what? I Give like, me like your top three. Well, I the the move. One of the movies I really enjoyed. I'm a big fan of Meryl Streep, and her her movie uh, Sophie's Choice. I really enjoyed the movie Sophie's Choice. The next movie, um, let's see, um, something recent that maybe i haven't seen in a while i'm thinking i haven't been to oh you know what i just saw it it's not my favorite but i was a fan of anthony bourdain oh
0: gosh yes yeah
1: and i just saw the movie uh on the life of anthony bourdain roadrunner yeah it's not my favorite but there's a lot that's taught there and because i've just seen it recently and anthony had a lot to contribute i'm very sad about, uh, I,
0: I'm, a, I'm a massive Anthony Bourdain fan, yes, and I wrestle with his impact on my life frequently, yes, because for a guy who seemed to have so much of life figured out, the end of his story is immensely troubling to me because oh. a person who had, by his own admittance, The dream life, the dream career, the dream everything. Who still wrestled with substance abuse demons and a million of other things. It's a it's a tragic view, and and it's a tragic. It it wrestle I wrestle with it because he had everything, and the way that it ended for him. It's it says a lot about life that I'm not. We don't have time to get into today,
1: but well, I'll tell you what. Uh, John, I would love to get into that because I, too, was a great fan of his. I followed him, uh, read a lot of pieces on his life, and that movie, his friends were, too, they're perplexed. Mm. They still are perplexed. And that's perhaps the mystery, of, you know, one of the things that Father Rohr says, there's a you know, there's many mysteries. Death is a great mystery, life is a great mystery, sexuality is a great mystery, the infinity is a great mystery, God is a great mystery. But mystery is not not knowing, it's ongoing knowing. So as people try to understand the mystery of death with Anthony Bourdain, it's ongoing.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I still to this day regurgitate and rewatch parts unknown uh yes. all, all the other from the other shows i'm losing my my grasp on it now yes but he had just such a tremendous life oh, of wow. and perspective and his ability to go into an environment and connect with people and places and things it was it was just tremendous to watch and
1: you know what john he did it at the table mm-hmm. which for us in eucharist i did a whole thing on that the reason why we christians bring people to the table is precisely what anthony bourdain did for a living was to get people to open up, to be uh, at a common table together, expose their feelings, their thoughts, their history, their stories. That's why we come to church. Mm-hmm. Now, if, if I were to talk to your generation, I would want to do the Eucharist for your generation as they did it in the first century, which was really, and if we were to do that in context of Eucharist, you wouldn't be able to, you, the churches would be full because it, it takes the conviviality that uh, bourdain was a was a pro at joining people together moving the rhythm of the table with good food because the food and the drink is the story of the people Mm -hmm. the product this is where this is where it happens at the table
0: i've often said over the last Mm -hmm. year you know with everything that's transpired with the coronavirus pandemic is god dang i wish tony bourdain was still around he would have a lot of a lot of input. And, Absolutely. Uh, it's a voice missed for sure, um, which coincidentally leads me into my next question, which is probably going to be a hard one. What's your favorite food? Uh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I must say that, and this will sound unusual for, it, it is hard, but I, I do like when it's done well, a pizza.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. <laughs>
1: I mean, I, I I like all different... I like pizza. I really do like pizza. Uh, just the other night, I, I, I like it done well. I'm, I'll put in a good word for my friend Santello and Elizabeth, who I think does a great pizza. Uh, but, yes, I like pizza very much. But I I, I have a broader taste. It's Whether it be uh, Italian cuisine or French cuisine or German cuisine or... Even Belgian cuisine, French cuisine, uh, I can. We could do a whole podcast on that one.
0: I look forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you have a what I would consider a difficult job for any number of reasons that go through your daily life in work. Most of it being centered around the fact that you have to, at any given time, stand up in front of a crowd of fifty to hundreds of people, maybe more, at a time, and speak. Did you ever struggle with confidence in your ability to talk to that many people and also to that tone what gives you confidence
1: you know what john that's where i i'm a very firm believer i believe in the holy spirit (laughs) we say that so at times uh even with homilies i don't have them written down a homily in decades Uh, i just start thinking and call on the spirit till the very last moment and even in settings, uh, whether it be in a classroom or whatever, I'm, I'm still calling on the spirit to, to move the words and the systemic ordering of the thought process and when to stop and listen and the Q&A. And so I, I'm very dependent when I have to speak publicly on my time contemplatively. That is to say, I try to spend time in silence in the mornings in centering prayer. And I try to balance, as I said, with the yoga. So the moments of public speaking, oral communication, particularly with preaching and teaching, I'm dependent on the times when I'm doing silence, solitude, yoga, to crystallize and order the communication.
0: I like that. What's the best piece of advice that you have for someone who's hearing you speak on this podcast for the first time?
1: Well, I would put it down into, I just had this in prayer, and I'm going to put it with love. The best piece of advice I can give is with the word love. The L stands for letting go. Do not hold on to things that you need to let go of. Letting go. The O stands for open be open open in the best sense of the term open open mind open heart open soul the v stands for vulnerability uh, we're all vulnerable during a pandemic and no one is uh, uber human superhuman uh, we're all vulnerable except vulnerability and the e stands for energy We all have divine energy. And if we all have divine energy, that means we all can be divinely creative. And the more divinely creative we are, the more loving we give love. We are love. And that's all I can say. Remember love, but remember letting go, open, vulnerable, energetic.
0: That's good. I like that. My last question is, what is one recommendation you have for everyone on the podcast today? It could be a book you've read recently, a movie you've seen, um, a podcast you've listened to, a TV show, just something that you've consumed. I have to
1: say, and I I know people might disagree with this, but if you want to listen to someone who is sharp and who I just uh, received an email from, and I think she has a great voice of wisdom, is Esther Perel. Hmm. She's a relationship expert. But Esther, because Esther was born in Leuven, Belgium. I lived in Leuven. That's mm-hmm. where I went to school. Uh, I've listened to her in interviews. She has. She's Belgian. She's a, uh, the daughter of survivors of the Holocaust. She's got a lot of practical wisdom. I, I can't say enough about uh, listening to some of the good counsel and advice of Esther Perel.
0: I will link her podcast or anything in the show notes. And then
1: I must also say, because I am part of an institution, listen to Pope Francis. <laughs> because Pope Francis, and if you know Italian, listen to Pope Francis state it in Italian. Uh, Pope Francis in his Laudato Si, in his, uh, on the environment, that probably will be the most significant document ever to come out during his papacy.
0: Uh, I hope it's it's, uh, things of more to come
1: Yes, it's outstanding So uh, I'll put in my last uh, big recommendation Uh, Listen a little bit to Pope Francis And let him teach
0: I like that. Father Anthony, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I had a tremendous time. Obviously, you've been a part of my family for a number of years, and you will continue to be. So I'm extremely appreciative of the time today and and just so so very thankful for the thoughtful uh, conversation that we had today. And I, like I said, look forward to doing it again in the future.
1: John, thank you so very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks.